Again, the idea of apologetics is not the concept of being good at saying sorry. It's the notion that the Bible gives us again and again that we don't have a brainless faith. And this is exactly what I thought about Christianity, that if you wanted to be a Christian, you had to check your brain at the door. And as you go to school, you hear people talk about evolution. You talk about the, the singularity principle. You talk about the Big Bang model of the universe. Uh, and and it's, it's given us just so fact. This is just an assertion the way that it is, and it does away with Christianity. As the uh, uh, French philosopher Nietzsche once said, God is dead and we have killed him. We don't need him anymore. And something really interesting has happened. After the Dark Ages came this enlightenment period where everyone thought that science would explain away God. The problem with that is the greatest scientists who've ever lived attributed all of their knowledge to one thing. In Principia Mathematica, which where Isaac Newton basically lays out the fundamental laws of physics and gravity, he does so by saying that he is pointing all of his research to the God who is above and through it all. There is no argument between modern science and Christianity, but modern secularism doesn't want you to know that. They don't want that to be an understanding that we have because then we invite back into the conversation the God idea. As someone who struggled with atheism and didn't believe that God was real, I was introduced for the first time to Christian thinkers, to Christian philosophers, to Christian, and something wild has happened in science and philosophy in the last 50 years. It has become, as Richard Lewontin, a Harvard uh, uh, evolutionary geneticist said, he is afraid that the field of science is becoming increasingly desecularized. That overnight, a guy named Alvin Plantinga, who wrote a free will defense, said, philosophy overnight has become increasingly theistic rather than atheistic. And there's this movement happening when we didn't know much about the universe, we could speculate that God was dead. Now that we know more about it, we speculate that there's no such thing as universe, morality, good, bad, evil or reason without God. So that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'm passionate about this. I get to go around to universities, colleges, conferences, and debate with atheists or philosophers or um, professor of religion um, people all around, and I get to talk about the evidence for God's existence. And so I want to be a resource for you on however I can do that. So what we're going to do is we're just going to do Q&A. So if you have a particular question, you might be a believer, you might not be a believer, but God welcomes all those doubts and skepticisms. And I believe now that there is a good answer for any question you might have. Just make sure it's in the field of apologetics. So don't ask me what I think about predestination and free will. I don't really care, but that's also a theological question, not an apologetics question. So apologetics is... Is there reason intellectually to believe that God is real, that Christianity is the right way to know him, the Bible is accurate, morality-wise, that the way that God spells out the way we should live is accurate with the human understanding? This is the field of apologetics. Now I lay it over to you to ask any question you want to ask. How can I answer any question you might have? What evidence does the Bible give to refute evolution? There's a few things. First of all, um, the way you just asked it is the way that Babylon wants you to ask the question, which is that evolution is the prima facie exemplary default setting, that this is the way that we all know that it is, and yet that's actually not the case. Um, evolution is and always has been a guess from the strata of fossils that we have found. It makes enormous leaps in its logic. But let me tell you something. I don't believe in evolution 
the reason I don't believe in, in the evolutionary process is not because I'm a believer. I don't believe in the evolutionary process. I know a lot of people that I look up to highly in the field of Christian thought who are evolutionists, but they are theistic evolutionists. So the argument that, that secularism makes for evolution is that everything came from nothing, order came from chaos, life came from non-life, and then for whatever reason, a gradual increase in species over time led us to become sentient beings, as if the whole process had a motivation from the beginning to make people who could observe the universe and ask questions about why we exist. That, for me, I don't care what you think about Christianity or how far-fetched you think it is, Every single one of those leaps of faith are so phenomenally anti-scientific that the first rule of astrophysics is out of nothing comes nothing. And so the idea of the only thing we ever observe about nothing is that it does nothing except for that one time when nothing created everything, including horses and zebras and you and me and subatomic particles. Remember that one time? That, that's called Hume's fallacy, uh, the ought is fallacy. It's the taxicab fallacy. So it's fallacious thought to even think that. And then you want me to believe that there was nothing and then life came from non-life. Do you want to know one of the leading ways that scientists right now, uh, because you can't create life in a laboratory. You ever heard of the Miller-Ulrey experiment where guys took all these particles from uh, the, the original genetic soup of the Darwinistic landscape and they took it into a laboratory then they shocked it with lightning and then they took all these and they said, look, we've created life in a lab. What they created was, was called simple protein synthesis, which went like, and then stopped. It wasn't complex replicating protein synthesis, which is necessary for life. Secondly, it was not prolonged, therefore it couldn't sustain life. Third, which absolutely destroys the argument of everything happening on accident, where did the experiment take place? In a laboratory governed by people. So you, the whole Miller-Ori experiment that says, look, we can make life without God requires a sentient, intelligible being to put the particles together to shock them with lightning. And they're borrowing, they used methane, they used chemicals in there, and they used gases that wouldn't have even been in the atmosphere at that point in the Earth's existence. So they cheated in their usage. They cheated in using intentionality rather than random chance. And they cheated by telling you that they made life when all they did was make something that could never, ever be considered life in actual biology. These are the things that people told me growing up, and it made me very angry. Right? How many of y'all have seen Haeckel's, uh, Haeckel's embryos before? It's in all your science textbooks. It's a guy named Haeckel who once drew all of the uh, in utero states of different animals, right? You guys have seen this before? You have, because it's in every textbook. And it's like, this is a dolphin fetus. This is an ostrich fetus. And this is a human baby fetus. Look, they all look the same. It's great. A dude drew it. Well, now we can actually look at, with the advancements in technologies, we can take actual three-dimensional, real-life, 4K, 8K pictures of these babies in utero, and guess what? They don't look anything like each other. A baby, that they sh the, the, the eight-week-old embryo that they show in each of these that looks so similar because a dude drew it himself, now when you take pictures and show them, they look nothing alike. And a um, a modern Christian apologist asked a publishing company, and they said, why do you keep promoting this evolutionary truism of homologous structures through Haeckel's embryos if we know that this isn't the case? His answer was this. We've known for a long time they don't look like that, but the usage is public domain, which means it's free print, 
So we put it in the text because we don't have to pay anything for it. And because we are pushing our agenda that it does help to promote the idea that structures can look the same in utero even though they don't. You know, you know how freaking infuriating it is to be someone who's relying on thinking that as an atheist, I was smarter than all Christians and then I kept finding everyone that I was banking on to back me up failed miserably? It sucks. You feel like an idiot. My dad was a pastor, so I had to be like, well, dad, did you know this? And my dad was like, I know you've been told this. Here's what the truth is. And then the atheists were going, yeah, we know. Yeah, we know it's not a thing. Yeah, we understand. The leading geneticist on planet Earth gave a symposium in Hawaii about five years ago, and he stood up in front of everyone, and he, he was responsible for kind of creating the different classification systems, right? He was, re- he was the overarching leading man on the entire evolutionary classification system. And he stood on a podium just like I'm standing right now. And he said, after, since Darwin's theory became popular, after a hundred years of research and modern technology and all these promises that we were gonna find evidence, I want anyone in this room right now, he was speaking only to geneticists, only to classificationists, and only to scientists. And he says, I want any of you to put forward a single thread of proof observable, measurable, and repeatable proof that the evolutionary thing that we pitch to everyone is actually true. Oh, so you've heard of this, because that's exactly what they did. They were dead silent. To which he responds, why is my audience silent? He was saying the same thing. He's saying, look, we've, we've, we've been asked to believe this. Let me give you a quote from um, his name's, he's an evolutionary from... Harvard. I'm typing and talking at the same time, and that's not going super well for me. Um, Order from Chaos. Here we go. (laughs) Here's what, there's a man, his name was Darwin, and he said, the main argument you can make against my theory is the fossil record. Does that feel like a big argument to make? (laughs) What he said is, this is, if we could prove it, it would absolutely be a way that we could not invoke the name of God to create an evolutionary process. He says, there's only one argument against my theory, and it's that the the fossil record completely disagrees with it. That fully formed, fully developed species came onto the scene all at once, goes against everything that he thought. Here's what it says. Um... Darwin's strongest opponents were not clergymen, but they were fossil experts. Darwin admitted the state of fossil evidence was the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. All the most eminent paleontologists and our greatest geologists have unanimously, often vehemently maintained that species do not change. This wasn't a Christian who said this. This was a guy named Darwin. He he was kind of for evolution, okay? So here's here's what else is written. I want to... Uh, it begins, this is a speech I was talking to you about earlier. His name's Dr. Patterson. He's a senior paleontologist in the British Museum. Um, he said, then I woke up one day and I realized that all my life I'd been duped into taking evolutionism as revealed truth in some way. After reading the data and the presuppositions, I concluded that the evidences for evolution were created to make links in the common descent that aren't actually there. Speaking to a group of classification experts in the New York Museum, he said, can anyone tell me anything you know to be true regarding the evidence of evolution? Any, any, just one, one thing that's true. Then he repeated after a few seconds, why is my audience silent? So 
This is the idea. The idea that you're asking comes from the presupposition which says evolution is the prima facie default argument. This is what we know to be true. And then it puts the burden of proof on Christians to say, what is your argument for theism for theism, or for intelligent design? The, the problem is it doesn't stand as the prima facie argument. So the burden of proof is not on the Christian to make the argument for theism, even though I can. But it is to say, you got to jump out of your Babylonian, right, your psychophantic. You've been tranquilized for a long time in the public school system to believe that all scientists believe that this is true. And when you go to the highest ranks of them, not the, the mid-level people, right? It's like the mafia. The mid-level dudes, like the hitmen and everything, they all still believe that evolution is the prima facie default setting. On the highest level of science, everyone's questioning it. Darwin's dilemma, Darwin's black box. Everyone's going, wait a minute. The fossil record disagrees completely with Darwin. And... To get to Darwinistic evolution, you have to first assume and assert with no evidence that one time everything came from nothing. The only time ever, second law of thermodynamics, was broken that uh, ordered things move into chaos. In order for evolution to take place, it has to go the opposite direction. Order comes from chaos. Also, do you know that <laughs> um, if two people in this room were to get married... And let's say they were both uh, blonde-haired white people, right? Could they make, could they, if everything was legitimate, possibly have a baby that was black? Genetically speaking. No. <laughs> no, they could not. No, 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 no. Right? There'd be a problem, right? We'd be, wait, hold on, something fishy happened here because that, right? You would have to go, wait, hold, someone was unfaithful to someone here. <laughs> so the reason I bring that up is because, did you know that evolution asks you to believe what we know to be true about genetics, which is that through generations, we lose genetic information, we don't increase genetic information. Adam and Eve had the ability to create short people, tall people, black people, white people, Asian people, Hispanic people. They had all of that in their DNA. And then with every generation, or you talk about uh, Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, those three sons became, Shem became the father of the Shemitic people or the Semitic people, basically Middle Eastern. Ham was the Hamite belief system, or the, the Hamite group, they were, they were black. And then he had, so his sons basically took on these three different characteristics and seeded these three different places. But every generation, we lose genetic information. So when people go, well, how did you put 1.5 million species of animals on the ark? Well, you're a moron, first of all, because you don't need to, if you want to make all the breeds of dogs we have, you don't need a schnauzer and a wiener dog and a golden retriever and a Labrador. That's not the way that genetics works. You have a wolf that is able to both make a wolf that we see in the woods and a wiener dog. The genetic information is, <laughs> wiener. I, the genetic information in that wolf possesses both the ability to do that and the ability to do this. So over time, the reason we have dog breeds which don't actually exist, right? You do not have a golden retriever. That's not a real thing. A golden retriever just means we keep breeding the most golden colored dogs with the most golden colored dogs and we've made up species, uh, we've made up breeds, they're not real. But now, over generations of breeding golden retrievers, if two golden retrievers breed, like you do, what happens? What do they make? A golden retriever, they don't ever make anything else. 
but the original wolves could pop out animal, or dogs that looked very different from one another. So a pack of dogs originally had a little bit of this DNA, a little bit of that, and then they would spread those dogs apart, breed them with those that were most like them. That's how we domesticated dogs. You took a wolf, a, a pack of wolves, and the nicest one, you said, you come here. And then when there was another pack of wolves, you found the nicest one there, and you bred those together. And then they had a pack of dogs, and the nicest one of them, the nicest one of them, you bred them together until your, your dogs were like, I want to be your friend. I, I love people. People are great. Because all of their ancestors were like, I'm going to eat you because you're the worst, right? So that's what it is. So for evolution to be true, everything must come from nothing. Life must spawn from non-life. And the main theory of how life has originated on planet Earth, this is true. It's called panspermia. It's as weird and gross as you think. It's the idea that because life is so complicated, the anthropic coincidence is needed to maintain life and sustain life. Like right now, your body is reproducing its cells at a rate that you would never understand. That the, the, even at the, at the subatomic proto, protoplasmic level of your DNA system and your cellular structures, your flagella and mito, mitochondria and your semi-permeable membrane are working so much. It, it's a computer system that a man named Francis Collins, he was responsible with mapping out the human genome. And when he was done with it, he converts to Christianity and writes a book called The Language of God because he believes that God has spoken his language in the, the DNA of every person. He's given the, the, the Nobel Prize of Science by a guy named Barack Obama. He puts it on his neck, and then he publishes a book called The Language of God where he says, DNA points to a creator. There is no argument against this. So with that being said, we then understand that we are incredibly complex beings inside of that. So if you, the, the idea is that couldn't have arisen by chance, right? The odds of the human that we know arriving by chance or life coming out by chance is a, a guy named Hugh Ross did the math on it. And it's one in 10 to the 120th power raised to the 126th power. So there are one in 10 to the 80th atoms in our universe. And he's saying numbers, which is, a, is an exponent raised to an exponent. There's, I can't even give you an analogy of how unlikely that is because there's only one in 10 to the 80th atoms in our universe and that's the smallest thing we can possibly see. So I don't know how to tell you. It's not possible that life arose by chance. So one of the leading theories, panspermia, is that aliens from another dimension that we can't see jumped into our dimension and then they planted life on the back of crystals and caves and that's what started the evolutionary process. That's called panspermia. It is believed by many of the leading secularist theorists that believe that's how life came to be. So at the end of the day, it really comes down to, do you want to believe in the God of the Bible or do you want to believe in time-hopping, space-jumping, aliens seeding life on the back of crystals. No one told me this crap, right? Like, I had to go through life going, science is, science is great, but science is limited. It doesn't even talk about the most important things of life. Where does justice come from? Why do we care about loving each other, right? Think about this line of thought. Secularism tells you this. You are an evolved monkey. Therefore, love your neighbor as yourself. Why, right? You used to be a bit of space dust, and then that space dust through millions and millions and millions of years became a monkey. That monkey became you. Therefore, rich people should give money to poor people. What? How does that, that's not cogent. That doesn't even make any sense. So that's, that is the burden of proof, I believe, that doesn't belong to the theist. It belongs to the atheist. It belongs to the evolutionist. Now, 
There are Christians who believe in theistic evolution, which means God oversaw without random chance. He particularly took the traits and made those. I can hear that argument all day long. I think that the book of Genesis says that God made them each according to their kinds. We have no observable change in kinds throughout all of, of history, nothing in the fossil record that proves a change in kinds. So I'm unlikely to believe that, but it's not because I'm a Christian. It's because the evidence isn't there in the fossil record. It's a long answer to a short question. Yeah. So uh, Noah almost certainly didn't bring a polar bear onto the ark. He brought a bear onto the ark. And that bear had the ability to sustain all the different changes within its environment that he possibly needed. So a, a bear originally has the ability to become a polar bear. It's written in his genetic code. The original bear could become a polar bear, could become a panda bear, could become a koala bear isn't actually a bear, but kind of neat if it was. Uh, the black bears that are all around camp right now, not all around camp, <laughs> they're creeping at night. Um, so all we needed was a bear, a, a male and a female bear. So what you're really talking about is when you do the numbers, you're talking about less than like 200 animals that actually needed to be on the ark in order to create all the different species because you don't need any of the fish or anything that can live in the water. Those didn't need to be on it because they could survive the flood. And so you're only talking about land animals and you're talking about their, their principal mates of all of the land animals. So your rodents, you don't need every single subtype of rodent. You just need the main ones. Now, when the polar bear goes up to the Arctic Circle or the Antarctic Circle, whatever, and goes and after a while, it, it has inside of its, its DNA the ability to, to morph and to transform within its kind. Everyone who is worth their weight in salt as a scientist believes in transition in, inside of a species, right? We, we all have to believe that. It is, it, that's what we call microevolution. It means that, right, it's like the peppered moth argument, that these group of moths are by this power plant that put out all this smoke, um, that these moths, as the plant grew and the trees became darker, they, all the moths became darker. Whoa, evolution. Yes, microevolution. Within their own kind, they're able to adapt to their environment, which God has built into animals to survive. But a polar bear originally was able to become a polar bear, but its ancestors could have become a black bear, uh, all those different kinds. So you only needed one of each bear, and then through time and adaptation, they can change the color of their fur, the, the, the ordinance of their paws, whatever it might be. So... That's the belief system of microevolution, and no one debates that, Christian or non-Christian. We all think that's the way that polar bears particularly came to be. Does that make sense? They all had a one original bear, and out of that spawned all different kinds of bears. There wasn't like, oh, this polar bear over here evolved. Oh, now a black bear over here evolved. No, the idea was in evolution that a bear evolved, and then they gave birth to all the different kinds of bears. So that's a good question. Yeah. Oh, day age theory, the best. Okay, so look, I don't care. I do care. I care because people care. But ultimately what he's asking is, what do you do with the idea that the universe is, you know, 13.4 billion years old? And yet if you look at the Bible, it just seems like it's no more than six to 7,000 years old. What do you do with that kind of an argument? And I say, there's not an argument at all. Here's my theory. Here's one that I adapt to. I know people are a lot smarter and different than me that believe in different things. 
So some people take the Bible completely literally in this case to say the universe was created in six days. Some people, because that word in the Hebrew is yom, the word yom in the Bible itself has meant a 24-hour period. It has meant a week. It has meant thousands of years. The word yom is just a time period. So some people think that when it says on the first yom, that could have been three billion years. On the second yom, that could have been two billion years. None of that is super exciting to me. That's absolutely valid within the text. I believe in what's called gap theory. You don't care. But here's what it is, which states that if you have your Bibles, quickly flip to Genesis chapter one, verse one, and it states this. Is everyone there? Homeschool kids were there first, I'll bet weren't you? Sword drill, so fun. You don't have any friends, but you can find Bible verses faster than anybody else. And I love that. Guys, I love that. I homeschool all my kids too, so someday we'll join a co-op together. <laughs> all right. See, homeschool kids can take it because they are uh, very confident, spend a lot of time with their parents. Verse one <laughs> says this. I'm just telling you, they've got the thickest skin of anyone. You can make fun of homeschoolers, they take it all day long. They're powerful. If I said it about a high school girl, they'd be like, no, stop it. That's not, I have seven friends. Audrey, tell him, I have seven. Okay. Anyway, verse one says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so gap theory says, for whatever reason, as, uh, as readers, we then read the second verse to be just an ongoing part of the first verse, when in the original Hebrew text, there's a time marker between these two things. So in other words, gap theory says in verse one, the writer Moses is declaring what happened when the universe began. In the beginning, God created the Uranus, the heaven, the heavenly bodies, the stars, the planets, the solar system. The book of Job says he stretches out the heavens, which we now know to be true. There was, used to be a belief that the universe was metastatic and it didn't move. We now know through the board blank and goof proof that the universe is expanding right now at a rate of 68 kilometers per second per megaparsecond. Our universe is getting bigger and it's stretching out. So for a long time, people criticized the Bible because it said, why do you say the universe is stretching out? It's not. Now every theory we have says the universe is in fact, stretching out. It's as if God wrote it and made it. It's kind of crazy. But so the Mosaic authorship right here is saying, in the beginning, God began to stretch and make the heavens and the earth. And then it leaves it alone. And that could have taken place for hundreds, millions, or billions of years. And then verse two starts with what word? Now, so it's, it would be like once upon a time in a kingdom far away, a father and a mother gave birth to a beautiful daughter, right? It's like the beginning of um, Tangled, right? The story of Tangled is not about a little baby whose mom got sick, right? That's not the story. The story is about a girl named Rapunzel who lets down her hair and people climb up and then she hits a guy with a pot and pan and then she goes to see the lights. Then at last I've seen the lights and it's like the fire has lifted. Stop. Stop, stop. <laughs> Don't make me sing. Don't make me sing. Let it go. Let, just kidding. Okay, stop. We only have two minutes left. Shut up. 
two minutes. Okay, so what am I talking about? Oh, yes, Rapunzel. Oh, yes. Okay, so the story of the Bible is not about how it began. The author wants to get to the creation or the reformation of the world and how humans then interact with their God. Why? Because that's what this book is written. It's not written, it's written for people, even though it's not written necessarily at them. So it wants us to understand that, but it's basically the same thing. In the beginning, a father and mother had a baby and that baby had a special power. But the story of Rapunzel Starts when it says, and now we find a girl in a tree who's singing Saturday morning. That's the story. No one's crazy enough to go, what's the story? What's the book movie Tangled about? You're like, it's a baby inside your mother, mom's tummy. No. So the Bible is the same thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it expanded and things grew and there was multiplication of all these different heavenly bodies and everything. And now I want to tell you the story of when God reformed the earth, right? Because here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's a gap. Gap of how many millions or billions of years? We don't know. Now the earth was what? Formless and void, which means the earth was already there. The earth was already present. It's talking about the tohu vavohu, the wild and waste of the earth. So where did the earth come from? For whatever reason, when we read Genesis chapter one, we think that God created in that moment, but what was it already doing there? In the beginning, God made it. Now he's gonna reform it. And between when he made it and reformed it is why we see that the universe looks like it's 13.4 billion years old. That's why science and theology and the Bible don't contradict whatsoever, only if you read it incorrectly. So that is my leading theory. I can sit in fellowship with someone who believes in the Yom theory, someone who believes in the literal seven-day theory, someone who believes that um, as long as you know that God was sovereign over it, I'm kosher with what you're saying. Because the idea that it came about by chance or by some theistic process for me, it's beyond the scope of reasonability for an intelligent being. That's, That's what I think. So with that, it is now 1035. We'll have another session of this here starting in a minute. If you wanna go check out one of those other sessions, you can do that. There's one in Memorial Chapel and on the Pondy deck. We'll be covering different questions in the next one. Thank you. Love you too. That's enough. There's these two verses, uh, 2 Kings 8, 25 and 26.